Hello, and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. Today, we have Mary Childs, author of The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. Mary Childs is a financial journalist who has written for Bloomberg, Barron's, and the Financial Times, and is currently the host of NPR's Planet Money. You worked in media. Was there something about finance that really caught your interest? Or was yeah. there a particular story that kind of you said, hey, this is this is a really cool space? I think I got into financial journalism because it seemed to me like I had a hard time fact checking or like reporting out political stories, mm-hmm. i.e. if someone has a scoop in politics, it's often like man has thought and like, I don't know how to fact check that. I don't know how to corroborate that. I like, I, I don't know what to do with that. But if someone's like, hey, I did a trade and this is what happened, I can go look on my terminal and find out if that happened or not. Like, I can go see what the price is. And that gives me some sense of security and just feeling comfortable with my own, bringing my own intellect to bear a bit more, where I just was not able to figure out a way to do that in politics, which I was more failing on my part. I feel like that, you know, some people are really good at it. And then furthermore, like, Not only do they always invent new stuff, and I find that really interesting and exciting, like in finance, there's always some new thing, some new trade, but also I think people assume you're never going to get it, that it's like so complicated and you simply couldn't understand. And for whatever reason, I'm like, oh, try me, you know, like I want to fight. I started out covering credit default swaps. That was my first real job. You know, I was an intern at Bloomberg and they put you through this rotation program so you can get a feel for capital markets and how they interact. And it was really hard because you are never an expert. You just, the minute you get your footing, you're moved to the next team, but it is super educational and I was very grateful for it. Planet Money, how'd you get the job? So Planet Money is a very special place. And one of the things that makes it so special is the extremely casual affect and the humor and the kind of irreverence. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in early in my career, it was a big hindrance that I cannot be formal, that I'm so informal and casual and act that way to everyone. So I think at Planet Money, the purpose of the show is to explain the world around us, the systems that kind of make up our economy and our world. And from coming from the financial press and the world that I had covered for so long, I understood what I was talking about, but I also could bring this to a broader audience and the beauty and the challenge and the opportunity of planet money is basically explaining all this complicated stuff to normal people and actually functioning as that bridge. And that's the dream, right? Like you want as a journalist, the whole point is to translate for your audience and help them understand something better. And at planet money, I think there's no better place to do that. You know, we use normal, small words. I mean, normal, big words too, but we speak like you speak to your friends. And I think it helps demystify these enormous concepts and break things down in a digestible way. And also it's been fun for me because, you know, when I started at the show, I'd be working on, a, on an episode with a colleague and be like, oh my God, you can just say that about the mortgage market. Like that, that's true, but you can just say it like that. And it was this liberating idea that you can have your own kind of synthesis and view and look at the world through your own eyes. Whereas previously I hadn't been able to bring a lens really in financial, pure financial reporting. You're really just fact, 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 fact. And at Planet Money, we get to kind of say fact. Interestingly enough, this is my favorite part. There's more color and more dynamism to it. So how did you end up working there? I think I applied in 2017 or yeah, it was 2017 for what ended up being Cardiff Garcia's job hosting the indicator. And it ended up like I was working on my book full time at that time. I'd left the FT and a couple people sent me the job opening for this new job that ended up being Cardiff's, which is the right choice, by the way. And it's this, you know, intense daily version of Planet Money. So I applied for that. I had 
egregious typos in my cover letter. I, I was not Cardiff and Cardiff got the job, which is right. And I finished my book and went to the Barons and had a great time at Barons and honed my writing a little bit more. And, and then they had another opening and they had remembered me from that, forgiven my typos apparently. And I had also done a couple episodes with Cardiff. So Cardiff had me come on when they wanted to explain short selling or wanted to talk about nuns being activist investors or whatever. And I was able to come on his show on the indicator and talk about these stories that I'd written at Barron's. And that was a, it wasn't meant as an audition, but it had, it served the function of one where they were like, oh my gosh, she can talk like a normal person on the radio, which is, you know, actually kind of a thing that isn't universal. And that was fun. And that like, I clearly was having a really fun time doing it. And that I think was the beginning of it. How was NPR set up? Is it a typical media organization? God, what's typical? I don't even really know how to answer this because they all have corporate structures in the normal way. Mm-hmm. It is, we are unionized. So I'm in SAG-AFTRA, which is pretty rad. And, but not, that's not totally uncommon in journalism. A lot of News Corp has a union the audience you're serving is obviously super different, right? So Bloomberg, the audience was the terminal user. You know, they also publish to web, but not everything makes it to web. So your primary function is you want to write something that is influential enough that maybe you move the market, that maybe you provide a revelation to people who have terminals. So they're like, wow, I made money because this reporter broke a great story about this company doing a fraud or whatever. And so that's the like very foundational reason for the news operation. There are many other reasons that go along with that, but that's that's a big one. And at NPR, our driving mission at NPR is to publish things for the people, you know, for the listeners of America. For, it's a public service. And so that's a very different stance where you're speaking a very different language. You're trying to disambiguate and demystify to an audience that may have no fluency or no previous experience with what you're talking about. At Bloomberg, you take pains to explain things clearly but at the end of the day, the person reading it knows what a credit default swap is probably. Mm-hmm. And the lay person listening to All Things Considered or Planet Money is going to be like, wait, what? Are you going to explain that to me? And how do you pick the top? It's pretty, it's generally speaking what we're interested in. We want to be on the news. It's To me, it's a good barometer when someone texts me, my normal friends text me and they're like, what's going on with NFTs? Can you, what's, what is that? Why is this happening? Or what's going on with Robinhood? I mean, the GameStop thing was obviously something that people were texting us about. So that to me is always a clear indication that we should be doing a show about whatever that topic is, where the the public, the people have a question and we should try our best to answer it. Otherwise though, we try to stay on the news to some extent, but we don't think of ourselves as like a newsy, super newsy show. You know, if you want news news, you're going to go to morning edition or all things considered. And so our role is more whatever we think is relevant or urgent or just super interesting or delightful. There's a big part of our show that where the guiding ideal is delight that you find something so interesting and clever or exciting or funny that that can be kind of the basis for your interest in the topic. This book is wonderful. Oh, and and it's, it's kind of a wild ride. I didn't quite <laughs> expect really you know, a book about bonds. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of swearing in the book. What's with all the swearing? Did you, a are you going to swear on my podcast? I'm going to try really hard not to. Yeah, all right. uh, I've gotten a lot of dings for that, but I will say <laughs> the, I only know of one. I haven't like reread my book, so this could be wrong, but I'm only remembering one instance where it's me talking and using a swear. All of the other instances I think, and again, I could be wrong, are quoting or paraphrasing my sources. So not to throw them under the bus, but you know, like, am I supposed to sanitize my sources? Don't you want a real feel for, we're aiming for verisimilitude here. Like I want you to feel what it's like in the building. And so I couldn't possibly scrub all the curses. 
Well, it's trader culture. That's the color. And so, and a long time, right? Seven years. Mm -hmm. Were Mm -hmm. some of these interviews difficult to get? Yes. Many of them were very difficult to get. You'll read in the intro that in fact, one person extremely central to the narrative refused to speak with me for seven years. And then at the very end of the process, arguably after the end of the process, obtained a copy of the manuscript. This is Muhammad Alari. And I forgot to say that part. He didn't want to participate, which is totally his right. And, but made my life more difficult. I had to kind of synthetically replicate his views. No problem. I can do that as a reporter. It's just like hard and a little scary because you want to know what someone was feeling and not what their friends say they were feeling. So at, in December, 2021, I get an email from a representative of his saying, oh, we'd like to chat. And he had obtained a copy of the manuscript somehow. And he had notes. So he sent over notes from his lawyer, which I happily put in the book. I was elated to actually get his views and get to incorporate them. But it was, it was stressful. What about everybody else? I talked to Bill Gross at length for many days and over many years. I started covering PIMCO in 2014, April. So we started basically talking then on and off. And when the normal, like, what trades do you have on? Well, how do you see the U.S. economy faring in the next blah, blah, blah. And then, and then we talked in 2017 about what was your relationship with your parents and what do you think happened in 2014? All that stuff. So So that's when he knew you were writing a book. He knew, when did I tell him? I think I told him in like 16, 2016, because I sold at the beginning of the, I like actually got the book deal at the beginning of 2016. Um, and yeah, he was super nice about it and, and continues to be. So he's, he's ended up writing his own book, which I'm super happy for. I think that's it's kind of lovely because if you read one and then the other, you can see it's a bit of a window into the reporting and the, the sourcing in a way where you, you can kind of tease out a thread of one of the people who, who matters so much to the narrative of this book. Was that there was, anything in his book that was really like mirror opposite of what you thought it would be? Not that I saw. I mean, there have been things that have changed over the years that I think he's gotten more like convinced of. He now says we were never, we were so overpaid. No one was worth that much money. And that's not new necessarily. He said similar things over many years and and he knows how lucky he was to be in that position. And he's, he's never been like cavalier about that. I don't think in a way that some people can be. Um, but I think that's become more of a headline for him where we were overpaid. They tried to push me out for my profits and because I was threatening the bottom line. And I think that not that that's, change necessarily, but that that's become to him more central and become the thing that he wants to talk about more. I think too, he's looking back with a different view and taking stock of his own role in a really interesting way. He's talked about how they tried to hire women and it was just really hard to do. And I think that's probably true. I, I believe him on that, but it also is like the end result wasn't great. So what do we, what do we make of that in the end? It's interesting because a lot of folks wondered for a long time why there wasn't any books on PIMCO. So I'm curious. Oh yeah, my God, and you mentioned you. Exactly. it in the book <laughs> and it was, and then we left and then nothing happened. And so I'm interested in yeah, how you, right. how you put the deal together. There was a book by Tim Middleton before the crisis. I don't remember what the year, but it was also called the bond King funny, but it was a very different book and it wasn't PIMCO wasn't the behemoth, it was enormous, certainly. And it was influential, certainly, but we hadn't had the crisis yet. And Bill Gross, you know, was the Bond King. And to my mind, the whole story was still developing in a very real way. So yeah, post-crisis, I was like looking around. I started covering them in 2014 and I was looking around and there just wasn't a real 
book about them that told the story of their influence and and Bill Gross's whole arc. And of course, the events of 2014 made it all the more exciting. So I don't know. I don't know why there wasn't one. In some sense, having gone through this like absolutely harrowing journey, <laughs> maybe no one else was dumb enough to write this book is the answer. <laughs> like there's a well when did you know that it was going to be when did I know yeah I honestly think yeah I did this article in December 2014 with the help of of many colleagues and and my editors at Bloomberg it was a a very collaborative effort but I I did a ton of reporting and talked to a ton of people at a time when it was like extremely difficult so I did a ton of reporting and talked to as many people as I could and over the course of three months managed to cobble together this story when we published that story at Bloomberg not only did it meet with such an enormous reaction that people were like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. And this company is bananas and whatever. It also, there was just so much that didn't make it in that I was like, okay, I clearly have enough for a book. Now, was that totally naive? Yes, very much so. (laughs) I had enough for a book, but I took years of reporting to get all of the things that are in here and get the the tone right and the weighting right. Like if you read the earlier drafts, like, no. Mm-mm. When you spend a long time with a subject, or if you spend a long time working at a firm or thinking about a firm, the firm changes even while you're covering it. And so this really is a true. long, this is a long arc. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm curious how you saw the shape of this, this narrative emerge. I went through a long phase where I tried to make the book, and I think to some extent it is this, but I made it the long history of bonds. And that was too much. Like I couldn't, jam all of that into 300 pages. That was, I had probably 800 pages worth that I did not publish. And that's not saying it was good writing. Like, let's be clear. It was like mangled and bullet points and just not anything anyone would read, but I was trying to put way too much in there. And, and I learned my lesson from that and I had to cut so much. And even within just the arc of PIMCO, I, there are so many people that aren't in the, you know, I say in the intro, this isn't a comprehensive history of PIMCO. It can't be, it's 300 pages. Like I left out a billion people. There are massively influential people that don't even get mentioned in here. So that's a little bit frustrating for me as a journalist, because it, I want to be comprehensive. I want to hit every single thing, but you know, it's been very gratifying where People within PIMCO have been emailing me privately saying, you nailed it. This is exactly right. This is the culture I know. This is the company, which is like, oh, such a relief. (laughs) Like these are very prickly people. And to hear them say that, that I did it right. I honestly didn't expect that I could, could hear that. I have all Mm -hmm. these little notes, like uh, ran 125 miles on a bet Uh and ruptured a kidney. Mm -hmm. Is there a backstory to that? He yeah. just wanted to be exceptional. I think it was on a dare. Who does that? I don't <laughs> Not know. Not me. I, I would never. So what, tell, tell us about the young Bill Gross. I think he was just really intense. Same as old Bill Gross, right? And you got like, him to, just... you got him to open up quite a bit about his, about his life. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, he's very mediagenic, obviously, right? He's been doing this for literally decades. So to some extent, I just was the person there to, to catch it and, and the person writing this book. So this part of that is just physically showing up and being the person. Another part of it is I love and appreciate bonds. So I think to some extent he was happy to have someone who shared that appreciation. Not that that like helped me understand his childhood, but I think it helped to kind of have that commonality. I don't, Bill knows bonds better than I do. Let's be clear, but, <laughs> but we, I appreciate what he does. And I, I, to some extent understand it and, and, 
and respect it. I think he was remarkably consistent, which actually was his superpower, right? Like his ability to stick with his strategy over decades was what outperformed for clients, but also that's just who he is. So he's never going to back down from a fight. He's going to stick to his story. He thinks what he thinks. He knows what he knows. He's just very consistent. He likes what he likes. Like all of that is very much consistent with young Bill. And there are a lot of stories that there was a story where when he was at Duke, he tried to scalp tickets for final four. And like, it ended up working out just by chance, but he didn't really like the kind of chance thing about it. You know, that's not a very reliable thing. And also you can't scale this very well. So he had this little entrepreneurial streak and there were all these other stories of his entrepreneurial activities in college that were more or less enlightening. But I do think this intense focus, you see this in his time in Vegas, he started to realize that if he broke his focus by stepping away from the table for a break, he did worse. So he stopped taking breaks. So that was him at what? 22, 20, like he was a baby. And that was the the same hyper-focused, intense guy that we know today. Well, how did institutions get their bonds before PIMCO? What were the old days like? So when Bill Gross started at Pacific Mutual, it was an insurance company and he was a credit analyst, which meant that he spent more or less half of his day analyzing potential borrowers, companies that wanted to borrow money from Pacific Mutual. And he helped to determine whether that was a good idea or not. And then the other half day, half of the day, he spent clipping coupons, you know, tearing off the little interest payment coupons and mailing them to companies to get their interest payments, which is bananas and adorable. But that was the world back then. So institutions would buy, buy a bond, lend money to a company and get this beautiful certificate in return. They were like very lovely and elaborate. And on the bottom were these coupons. And that was the thing you could trade them by appointment, but people didn't do that. It just wasn't, I mean, very occasionally, but there just was no real secondary market to speak of. What do you think was his special sauce? How did he become the go-to guy for managing these big portfolios? I think it's twofold. I think he truly did have an insight a couple insights. I think he had structural, he found these structural inefficiencies or opportunities in the market where people were wrong or willing to overpay or wanted to, one of the, one of the strategies that he identified was selling volatility was basically that normal people like you and me, we aren't correctly valuing the price of basically insurance where I'm just always scared. I'm always worried that something's going to happen. And Bill Gross is willing to sell me basically insurance and I can sleep at night. I'm happy, but I paid for that. And I paid him for that. And he's happy to accept that money. So that's a psychological thing that he found in the market and that worked for him for literally decades and was a big factor in his outperformance. So there were a couple threads like this, you know, a similar one in mortgages, a similar one in credit, a similar one in duration. And he, I think, learned how to strip those out, to focus on them and to trade them. He made it very competitive. And there are, I've talked to sources who worked at PIMCO and then went elsewhere. And this extra push for that extra basis point, you know, there's a point at which everyone taps out. There's a point at which people are like, I'm tired and I shall no longer, you know, it's not worth the effort to get this extra basis point. And PIMCO just keeps going. And that will, you know, that will get you more and that will get your clients more. But it's also... At a, you do have to kind of weigh the marginal utility and <laughs> if it's worth that and, and the conversion from, you know, being completely exhausted and the cost of burnout and churn, like all of these things that we talk about as a society now, PIMCO just was willing to ignore all of that and just go for it. And that's true in their treatment of the street 
where they were far more willing than I think anyone I've talked to to just scorch the street, to be so rude to the street in a way that everyone else is trying to play a long game and stay friendly with their counterparties and get the first look on the next bond issue. And Pimco's like, you need us. You need to call us. You need to be nice to us. We don't have to serve you. We don't owe you anything. You're going to call us to anchor your new issues because we're big and we're Pimco and you need our information flow. And this stance, which existed long before it was justified, really was true and helped them to stay more competitive and to treat the street in a very different and arguably extremely rude way. Another reason why he was the guy you went with was because he was so good at marketing. One thing people often say is that Bill Gross was like a product of the media. And to some extent, that's true because he was so good at marketing himself. He wrote these monthly investment outlooks that had this little intro that was just a very quirky, weird little personal anecdote that was memorable, oftentimes embarrassing, sometimes like definitely an overshare. And you're like, what? Like, this is a real person writing this. This is incredible. But people love them. And or I should say, and people love them because that's why, right? So they were very, very widely read, very anticipated. And he was on TV all the time. And he's very good at breaking down concepts into relatively simple terms and, and making this kind of stuff feel a little bit more accessible. So in being on TV, he helped to attract more clients and increase his prestige, increase his fame and bring in more money. So I was going to wait until later, but of course, the thing that jumps out to everybody who reads this book is the money, power, fame thing. And of course, yeah. everybody's shocked by it because, you know, obviously everyone assumes if you work on the street, it's money. And he sticks with it. He was just on Barry Ritholz's podcast this past week saying, yeah, no, it's still fame. He's told people that for decades. Yeah. I talked to people who heard him say it in 2001. He never has wavered on this. And I think that speaks to his exceptional focus and his in intense competitive drive, right? He's just an intense person. And when he gets locked in a dynamic with someone, he's locked in. And maybe that's the benchmark. And maybe that's Jeffrey Gunlock. And maybe that's Muhammad al You know, whoever it is, he's going to just hyper-focus on that person and or, or that index or whatever it may be and do his best to show them that he's the better deal. And I think that's Part of that is the bond market ended up being the place where he was able to do that the best. He wanted to play basketball in college and he realized it just wasn't going to work out for him. You know, he, he tried a number of ways to be exceptional and, you know, he's also proven himself in the stamp collecting market, which to some extent he also financialized. He has said that he conflates fame with love and that if he gets enough headlines or something, if he keeps the thing going, if he if he reaches out and, and, and is this big personality and this thing that people look to, that it'll make him feel loved. And he knows rationally that that's not going to work, but it doesn't stop him from continuing that pursuit. You said he, he financialized the stamp collecting market? Yeah. So I don't know that other people had done this. And I'm not a stamp expert. I have not covered the stamp market for 10 years. So like, forgive me. But it's super interesting where he got a hold of these kind of market points auctions and tabulated the different stamps and what they went for and provenance and all this and, and figured out basically created in his mind, like trade points and data points about where these stamps have traded in their value and their worth and their, you know, over time and appreciation versus inflation and against a benchmark and da, da, da. So yeah, I mean, he was competing with himself more or less. There were other stamp collectors that were, that were big deals, but none were the bond king playing in stamps. So I think it, he kind of bought all the stamps that were the good stamps. And then he was like, well, I did it. <laughs> and then he was out. I thought it was interesting that he kept trading up as well so that mm -hmm. he could get rare and rare items. And then at one point, and then he was just yeah. kind of done. Let's yeah. talk about his leadership style. 
How, did, how does Bill Gross run an investment meeting? So you want to come correct. Okay. You want to be dressed correctly. You want your beard to be perfectly trimmed. You want your suit to be nice. You want your page numbers to be flush left and correctly in order. You don't want to like have dropped a page by accident or maybe one of them's off. No, everything's correct when you come to present. And even that, like, even then everything's perfect, but you have to also have everything arranged in your mind perfectly. You need to know the sharp ratio of everything. You need to know the information ratio. You need to know the last price. You need to know the price before that. You need to know every single thing for the thing that you're pitching, or it's just going to be a bloodbath. You're just going to get torn apart. I've recently come to the opinion that he buckets behaviors that anything in service of client performance, anything in service of performance is okay. And anything that's not, that's where he kind of thinks he's like polite and nice and whatever. But if it's for the client, like, why do you care how I ask the question? We're trying to get performance. Like we're trying to do well in the market. Did I hurt your feelings? Like what? It's not even relevant. So I feel like the, the atmosphere was always extremely intense as you can imagine. And just absolutely scorching. If you were caught on your back foot, if you were, for whatever reason, you didn't know the information ratio, God forbid like that. (laughs) It would be a bad day for you, but that's to, to Bill, that's the game. And how did people bring him ideas? So people would drop ideas kind of on his, there was like a bucket on his desk that they would drop off their trade ideas. He would read them over the weekend, I think, or more urgently than that, you know, depending, but they were basically, you know, that was his, his favorite hobby. Well, some, well, some firms, you know, they, they actually have the traders or the PMs battle it out. You actually have to argue your ideas in front of oh, the other, I think that's, your firms. Yeah, I think that's he present was, there as well, where, you know, I might be presenting, but, you know, my colleague across the way has a totally conflicting view and we will do get out for sure. But, you know, there's also a, di- there's a difference in tone where if we're duking it out and we're all like in this rough and tumble together, that's a different feeling from if I don't have my numbers correct or um, if I'm like caught wrong footed in some way, then I'm a totally wounded animal and everyone can kind of pile on. So there's a difference where like, I'm either in the game or I'm not as a presenter. And I think like you can get to a consent, like a good view of a trade from the duking it out way, but then the wounded animal way is not, not what you want. <laughs> That's the bad outcome. And what about the culture itself? Was he a good team leader? You talked a number of times about how there was a real culture there. People hung out together, went drinking together and he you know, he would go home early or he really wouldn't participate, but at some point you have to lead. Yeah. I think his conception, I think his idea of leadership is a bit different from he he's leading by example in, in a lot of ways where he's intensely focused on trading, not doing the other stuff. And I think that's what he wants from everyone else. We should be focused. We should be doing, you know, the work that gets us better performance. There is a lot more to a culture though. And I think he left a lot of that to say the CEO, to whoever's managing the people and making the executive decisions or to the Jim Muzzy, you know, who for a long time was considered Pimco's culture keeper. And that worked when it worked. That was, that was people, it was still an intense place and certainly not for everyone. And that's a longer discussion, but I think the, the exclusionary or discriminatory elements of that. But I think that when those people fell away and the management with Muhammad Alarian was just so different and the frictions there became so acute. It certainly was not, it was not a happy place. And I think Bill's view of it, I think would be that he was never supposed to manage people, lead them fine, manage them. No. So that's a, that's an important distinction, but it's also 
a little bit one without a difference. If you're leading, you're setting the tone for the culture, the way that people enact a culture that you're prescribing or you're setting out for them, you kind of got to keep an eye on it. And I think to some extent, this was more toxic than perhaps was optimal. You outlined three master trades in the book. I'd love to go over <laughs> those. The, the first okay. one was the, uh, the contrarian trade. So this is basically just that PIMCO saw the housing crisis coming and structured trading around it in such a way that did really well. And one thing that I think is interesting about this that I don't really talk enough about in the book or, or really dig into is they structured it in a really, really conservative way where a lot of the people that you hear about that traded the crisis well, their investments were super risky and kind of on a knife's edge. And PIMCO would do a risky trade and would take on risk for sure. But the timing element can get really gnarly, really fast where, you know, if John Paulson's trade had been off by like 10 minutes, he would have been wiped out and just by structure of the trade and in, you know, PIMCO income in total return. Yes, they had trouble through the crisis. Everyone did, but then they were able to, because they had less trouble than most people, they were able to really capitalize on investing in, you know, scooping up distressed assets on the other side. And this is like, you know, you, people talk about the quality of your returns and this is a higher quality, right? This is a, a better risk adjusted approach where you're not kind of swinging for the fences in a set time period. You're it's more like Kelly criterion, right? It's more, you have the odds in your favor. Let's lean in a little bit. Let's lean out when we need to. The second one was uh, the power trade. So this is basically that the mortgage crisis, the financial crisis was centered around the mortgage market. And there's PIMCO had long been one of the biggest investors in the mortgage back market. And they were very much experts. They knew what they were doing and they owned a lot of securities. And Fannie and Freddie had this, obviously had a ton of toxic debt as did you know the entire mortgage market was obviously in dire straits at the time with people unable to make their payments, people defaulting on their mortgages left and right. And there came this moment where Fannie and Freddie had to roll new debt and Bill Gross and Pimco were like, do we need to, do we have to show, we don't have to show up if we don't want to. And there's this, this sense that that's true. They didn't have to buy this debt. You know, the government promised that backing was not explicit at the time. The U.S. government ended up basically coming out and saying, we're going to put Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship. And to me, this is the moment where that their power is most clearly articulated, where they, Bill was on a podcast recently talking about how they didn't bully the government, but fine. You don't have to bully the government to still be powerful and to still influence people. You don't have to be unkind about it. You can still kind of strong arm someone in a very quiet way. And I think that this was a real demonstration of their power. And the last one, which I think is, is probably explains a lot of the difference that uh, PIMCO brought to the field was the structured alpha and the Lambda cash. Tell us yeah. about the Lambda cash. So the cash and cash equivalent arbitrage was one thing where they managed to basically see that when you had to hold cash against a position, you could also hold cash equivalents, AKA short dated corporate floating notes that 
yielded more than cash. And that little difference would put money in their pocket consistently, a little tiny bit of money, but consistently money over time. And that adds up. And then there was also this thing called Lambda cash, which basically says, you know, if you have a futures contract to buy bonds at a certain date, you have time before that contract actually requires you to buy the bonds at that certain date. So you can invest some of that money while you wait. And this also interacts with the kind of implied repo on futures. There was also kind of a parallel in the mortgage-backed market because mortgage-backed securities generally traded on a forward basis or TBA to be announced. And those generally traded, those forward trades generally had a implied repo rate that was less than LIBOR. So you just have to buy the MBS forwards and then roll them and keep the cash in that kind of cash equivalent bucket that you already know yields more than regular cash. So... There are a bunch of different, you know, these are like little tiny little loopholes almost in the ways that contracts are written, in the ways that contracts functionally work, in the ways that banks enact things that allowed PIMCO to pick up teeny weeny little pieces of extra money, little basis points here and there. But again, over time, especially in fixed income, that's how you win. It's adding and adding these little basis points here and there over time that you can consistently scrape out of the market. And that over the decades really delivers outperformance. Muhammad Alarian plays a big role in the book. Before we get to him at PIMCO, did you spend any time at Harvard Management Code? Yeah, it's funny. I kind of like drop the thread in the book. I just like never go back to it. I'm like, HMC was doing great. And then I never circle back. And I guess it wasn't that relevant to the narrative. Like it doesn't matter to the narrative. There are different opinions about how this went and you know to what extent it was Larry Summers' fault and not Muhammad's or friction between the two. Because I think there was a bit of a, a zeal for investing in interest rate swaps and stuff that whatever. It did come up that Harvard Management Company, the fund that manages the um, university's endowment, did not do great at all in the crisis. Harvard's such a political place. And I think Mohammed Alarian was really excited to be there. And then it was just, I don't think Boston was super welcoming to him is the impression that I got. And the endowment community is very small also, as you likely know, like it's, there are like 15 people in it. And there's definitely a sense among a lot of them that, you know, he was in and he was out and he kind of left a mess. There's this reliable cycle in your book of shiny new people with a halo that turns into a crown of thorns. I think that's the actual mm-hmm. quote. And so obviously Elarian and, and Gross, that perfectly describes their relationship. So tell me about their relationship. Why was he brought in? Bill knew that he needed a successor, that he is mortal that death comes for us all. And that in order for PIMCO to grow beyond its founder, you know, co-founder, he needed to have a viable succession plan. He in part knows this because, you know, clients kept asking for it. So they're like, we're grown up. We can absolutely figure this out. Let's have somebody come in. And they set their sights on Muhammad Alarian. He's super polished. He's so poised. He's got this fancy background and education. And and so he comes in, but as he's coming in, you know, the, the story goes that he demanded at the 11th hour to be made co-CEO as well. And PIMCO had prided itself on being a three-legged stool that did not have any kind of cross-contamination between the different parts of the business. So you would have the business executive stuff, you would have the investing stuff and the client stuff. And those were three distinct pods. And having someone do both was kind of troubling to them. And Bill Gross and the then CEO, Bill Thompson, they were like, I don't know if this is the right thing, but Bill Thompson was kind of like thinking about eventually exiting one day. And they were so excited about Muhammad or had been. And so he comes in as, you know, as we all now know, as co-CEO and co-CIO, which PIMCO people will tell you is the last time they will do this as well. Let's get to the exit. Was there any Mm -hmm. one event that preceded it 
or was it just a constellation? Hmm. You know, I'm acting like I've never gotten this question before. Of course, I've, I've thought about this before, but so many people have different answers to this and it is really interesting to me, but I think, okay. So many factors led up to the dramatic events of 2014 that precipitated his departure. And certainly chief among them is Muhammad al his departure as chief executive officer. So there had been kind of a placid front. They had managed to keep kind of a placid front on this, but Bill and Muhammad were not really getting along behind the scenes. The relationship was deteriorating and starting to kind of spill out in meetings in a way that was just like not tenable. So finally, Muhammad Alarian quits January, 2014. And then there's this big article in the FT. And then there's another one in the journal. And both are saying the hours were too long and Muhammad was overworked and he was tired. And this journal article says like, Bill Gross is really intense and kind of a jerk and lists all these different kind of social infractions, if you will. And people were pretty shocked. It was one of those articles that really makes waves that everyone stopped oh, what they're was, doing. Uh, Greg yeah. Zuckerman's story. Yeah. Greg and Kirsten Grind. Yeah. And it was just enormous. And it really, I think, changed the public perception of Bill Gross. And I think that was hard for him because as someone who cares so much about fame, that was important to him. He cared a lot about that. He'd spent decades building that image. And now all of a sudden, Muhammad's the good guy. Like what? So over the course of the next months, he gets kind of fixated on this idea of who was leaking to the press and to, for that FD article, for that Wall Street Journal article. And the business side, the rest of PIMCO's management is like, oh my God, dude, like, let's move on. Like, can we just run the business? Like Muhammad's gone. We got to just keep going. And I think he was, he was stuck on this thing and it just ended up kind of cleaving his relationship with management. But to my mind, there's this one moment in an executive committee meeting where they ask him if he tried to force Andrew Balls to quit this uh, managing director. And he's like, no. And I, it's this kind of beautiful moment to me where there's so much embedded in the language and in perception and what everyone's bringing to the question and the answer where all of PIMCO's management basically is like, you did try to force him to quit. We know that you tried to, like you told him to consider resigning. Like what? And given the power that you have, like, of course you try. But he's like, I didn't try to force him to quit. I told him to think about it. I'm just a person. And so there's this really interesting, like, understanding of power dynamics and relationships and human psychology that everyone's bringing to bear and that are totally not in concert. They're just absolutely in conflict. And to me, that moment is, is when everything was over, you know, it was probably over before that, but that was like, something's going to give now. And how, how was it officially completed? Did he have a, does he still have a stake in the firm? I don't think he still has a stake in the company, but he did sue them over this. He actually ended up suing PIMCO over his departure. He said he asserted constructive termination and breach of contract. He basically said that he was owed his third quarter bonus and he asserted it was a very colorful lawsuit. I highly recommend reading it. It drew heavily on this kind of pamphlet. I don't know how to describe that he wrote about his ouster. It's like this 30 page thing called Murder on the PIMCO Express, uh, which is echoed in his recent book. I'm still standing Bond King, Bill Gross and the PIMCO Express. So you can hear it's still there. It's like there's there's a murder in here. Yeah, but they had a very strong difference of opinion about how their relationship ended. And it was a little bit complicated by the fact that Bill Gross left a note that said that he quit. Pimco was like, no, you quit. Here's the note that you left saying I resign. But he actually ended up persevering and Pimco ended up settling and they sent $81 million to his family foundation 
Did most of his wealth come from pay, from income, or from his stake? The Allianz deal, they created what were called B shares, and the joke mm-hmm. is that the B stood for billionaire. So I would say evidence, yes, that that did help to, that was an enormous part of his wealth creation. But then he had also like annual bonuses of almost $300 million. Why does every investment firm turn into King Lear? Do you think there's a good way to do Hmm. succession? Such a good question. I think the fundamental problem is you, in order to be that person who is this successful, the elements are typically something like, you might be a little bit control freaky. You might be a micromanager. You're going to be exacting and a perfectionist and all of these things that make it extremely difficult to kind of get your paws off your creation, right? Like to, to actually release your grip on what you made. And I think you're right. You see that across the investment management industry, some handling it more gracefully than others, but it gets really gnarly. And I think that might just be just in, some cases that's the people that are that are these in these roles are just not going to be able to exit gracefully and that's just life people at pimco speculate even bill has speculated is there another way this could have gone down could this have gone better than it did and of course there's a world in which we're all our best selves and you know we transcend and are able to say oh my gosh i really think i should take this path and that's just often not realistic the the personality types don't allow that so I think there's a good way to do it and there's a not great way to do it. And this is definitely the not great way, but it's really hard. The ingredients make it really hard. And how is PIMCO today? They made the transition fairly well. Yeah. I mean, I think I helped them by taking so long to write this book because everyone forgot for a while. (laughs) I think they might've been grateful for that. They didn't say that, but yeah, I mean, they have this CEO, Manny Roman from Man Group, and they say that his relationship with Dan Iveson is a bromance which is an interesting choice of words in my view. Did you spend any time with uh, Jeffrey Gunlock? (laughs) I get this question a fair amount. People love to talk about Jeffrey Gunlock, Bill Gross included. I think he wasn't obsessed with the idea. This is me speculating. I don't think he was obsessed with the idea of like helping me with this book because it wasn't about him. And it's like, why would I help you with that? Like, it's just not interesting. It's aggrandizing someone else. Again, that's my opinion of, of what I received, but yeah, no, I had talked to him. I'd interviewed him plenty of times. I had talked a lot to one money, one money manager at his firm for many years when I was coming up in corporate credit reporting. And just, she was enormously helpful in kind of helping me get my footing. And a lot of people at that firm have been super helpful in, you know, explaining things and demystifying, but I think, yeah, he just wasn't, I, he wasn't interested in talking. And how would you compare the two of them? I mean, they share a lot of similarities, right? They're both competitive and intense. I think Jeffrey Gunlock is less interested in fame than he is in influence. And there's a difference, right? There's an empty fame where people look at you, but don't listen to you. And I think Jeffrey wants to be heard. I think he wants to wield some power. So in that, that question, money, fame, or power, I think he would go for power. Again, that's my personal opinion. Of- and what is, and what does Bill Gross think of him? Oh man, let me actually pull it up because he has said it. <laughs> so here we go. He has been talking about this. He mentions Jeffrey Gunlock in his book and says, Oh, he's supposed to be the bond King, but that guy hasn't outperformed. Da, da, da. And I'm just going to tell you what he said in a podcast too. He's um, anointed himself the next bond King, but you know, 
PIMCO was 1 trillion and Jeffrey Gunlocks is 50 billion and not growing. So that's his characterization. He says that he doesn't deserve it. He thinks that he's smart and he respects him, but he thinks that he is not the new Bond King. So that's that. Is there anything in your research that surprised you? Any of your preconceived notions when you went into this? I think I thought that you could get out and be happy. And I only found like two people who did. Get out. Of the system, of PIMCO, of the industry, of, I don't know, of PIMCO, I guess, of the kind of bubble of rich white Newport Beach, whatever. Like, I think you're in the office for so long and you interact with these people so intensely. You're, it becomes this crucible, you know, it, it becomes your world in a way that I think is really unhealthy. What, what yeah. is the day like at PIMCO when Bill Gross is working? I know he got in really early. Yeah. And you were supposed to too, you know, all of the up and down. Yeah. I think this is true mostly in the trade floor on the portfolio management side, but you were supposed to be there when Bill was there. And when Muhammad was there, you're supposed to be there when Muhammad was there. And those, that was a long day. So you got to be ready at any point for any kind of pop quiz. If Bill Gross messages you and says, what's in your portfolio, what do you, what's your best trade idea? You know, you got to be ready for that. You need to know the latest price on the thing that you hold, everything in your portfolio, whether or not you bought it, maybe your predecessor left it there for you. It's a little stressful. It's that's good in a way, because of course we want our fiduciaries to know their securities that they hold and be able to defend them. But at the same time, like that kind of pressure cooker environment is I think pretty corrosive after a time or maybe. And you said you, you, there were, there were a couple of people who did get out happy. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of people that for whatever reason, just managed to exit with their head on straight still. And I don't really know how they did that. One that I think did this successfully is Scott Simon. He was the kind of, he was the head of the mortgage desk for many years and he was, you know, he generated a lot of profits for the firm and he just peaced out in 2013 and, and 2013 and went on to enjoy his life, which a lot of people in this industry and in that place are not capable of doing. They just like can't leave. And I don't know, he managed it and he's just like bops around doing fun things. Sounds nice. And Mary Child's future plans. What's the next book? Let's see. I think I'm just going to enjoy my life for a minute. I'm going to sleep. Sounds like a good idea. The name of the book is The Bond King, and the author is Mary Childs. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.